Hello and welcome back to I'm Glad You Exist and welcome to 2024. I wanted to kick off 2024 with a huge episode to get the ball rolling and as such, here's me presenting you with a guest whose appearance I had to keep under wraps for a while. Michael Swaim is a podcast and creative hero of mine. If you told me when I started IGYE several years ago that he'd one day not only guest on this show, but I'd also get to be one of the first people to read his new book, well, all I can say is that version of me would probably sink back into his chair, think, damn, that's cool, and then lose just about all the motivation needed to actually have those events come to pass. I'm a firm believer in enjoying the journey rather than fixating on the destination, and that Michael is joining us as IGYE rounds the corner on 100 episodes with over 16,000 total downloads is the thing I'd want to celebrate. Because what an amazing journey it's been thus far, and who knows what things a future version of myself would travel back in time to tell me if and when doing this podcast gets tough. So, who is Michael Swain? Back in the 2000s, there was a website called Crack.com. It does still exist, but we'll get to that. Before YouTube had the monopoly on all video content, we had websites like Crack.com and CollegeHumor.com, where you could go to watch original sketches, read articles, and generally engage in creative content across a variety of mediums. I don't know when I discovered Crack, but I was instantly hooked. As far as I'm concerned, it popularized the listicle format of articles that begin five reasons why, top 10 plot holes in, and such. But before articles like that were clickbait nonsense, they were often satirical and comedic explorations of media tropes, industry information, and fascinating factual anecdotes. Michael Swain was a staffer at Crack.com and became the face of their video department. Through his work on series such as Agents of Cracked, Cracked TV, after hours, and plenty more, he established himself, to me, as a man with exceptional wit and camera presence, comedic timing, and a true appreciation for creative media. He was also part of the sketch troupe Those Aren't Muskets, who created some of my all-time favourite sketches and can all be seen on YouTube. We mentioned sleeves in this conversation, please check that one out, along with The Hot Farts and Zombie Majority. Michael was also a frequent guest on the Cracked podcast, which laid the groundwork for his own foray into the medium when, in 2017, he left Cracked. Unbeknownst and unrelated to him, Cracked would end up cutting their entire video department shortly after, and many of the mainstays within the company and personalities that made the site so popular would go their separate ways, many into solo creative ventures. For Michael, he started a podcast network called Small Beans, which was the direct inspiration for everything that has come out of IGYE. Under the Small Beans umbrella, Michael and his friends produce podcasts on everything from video games to race relations, the parallels of Star Trek and Futurama episodes to mental health exploration. That breadth of interest is what really endeared me to Michael, someone who had such deep appreciation for the comedic genius of early year Simpsons, but was also a heart on his sleeve overthinker who candidly shared his troubles with alcoholism and poor mental health with his friends and fans alike. I mentioned in the episode that I'm trying to stop myself from gushing, but truly, and perhaps to his discomfort, Michael, though someone I've never met, has had a huge impact on my life and the content I produce. It has been a genuine honour to have him on the podcast. And as I mentioned, this comes from Michael releasing his first novel, The Climb, 
which he describes as an autobiographical fantasy sci-fi. It's available online digitally, and the audiobook is being recorded currently. So if you like what you hear in this episode, be sure to follow Michael via his socials to find out more. Okay, huge intro, but I had to give context to such an important guest for me. It was a pleasure to converse with a hero of mine, and I hope this chat leads you, if nothing else, to some incredible comedic content. So sit back and find out why I'm glad Michael Swaim exists. Hello, everyone. We only have a brief elevator ride to discuss it, but my name's Michael. I'm sad a lot of the time, but you can't tell because I make hilarious jokes, as I have for 15 years. I'm a writer, performer, host, thing like things like that. Um, I have a rap album coming out. I have a comic book coming out. You never know what I'm going to do, <laughs> but I'm a content creator from way back. You may know me from Cracked After Hours, other stuff like that. Thanks for having me, John. Fantastic. Thank you so much for being here. Um, How's that? Did I sell the pitch? I, I think pitch so. Um, okay, great. I think it's also very pertinent that you refer to it as a short elevator ride. And what we're going to be talking about is the complete antithesis of a short ele- elevator oh, ride. Oh, yes. The indeed. longest. Yeah. <laughs> a long escalator, if you will. Um, so, like, I just want to get this out of the way. Like, this is, this is a big deal for me because I'm someone who's absorbed your content for as long as I've well, maybe not as long. Obviously, that was not as long as you've been making it, but definitely since the um, the early days of Cracked, Cracked TV, um, and those are muskets, um, deep cuts. And it's like, I, I think what'll be good is we'll quite likely get into the topic topics about being being sad people in the, in the literal sense, you know, <laughs> <laughs> not in the. I figured sense. it would come up on this show, yeah. Um, so the a lot of the sketches from those aren't muskets are like almost on the playlist of if I, if my head's in a weird space, I'm like, I'm just going to go back in time to the first time, like watching those things, you know, like I put oh, sleeves in the email to you and like that that's means the world gold standard for me, you know, uh, that we could become comfort food is a dream come true. <laughs> I was just thinking about the sleeve sketch the other day. I haven't watched it in maybe 10 years. I think I'm going to go back and watch that one. Oh, let's... The only joke I still remember is, but he takes heroin. Yeah. And you know how I cover my track marks? With sleeves. <laughs> I just love fun, it. Fun it's sketch, so good. Yeah. And just the ending of it, um, people are going to be like, what are they talking about? But just for my own indulgences, um, that kind of anti-joke at the end of just like, hey, Mark, we were just going to go get some heroin. Want to come? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and they're all friends again. And they love it. So... Your your career is something I'd certainly want to want to talk about within as much time as we have, but it's probably worth highlighting for the listener. The reason we're talking today is you've just released a book. Yes, my first book, mm-hmm. my debut novel. It's called The Climb, which is, you know, Robert Brockway, friend of the show, <laughs> often told me to change the title to something more evocative, something more snakes on a plane, you know, that hmm. describes what it is, but... I feel like the climb is pretty appropriate to it. It's a novel about um, striving, hmm. wouldn't you say? It's just basically about the human need to strive for things and how things don't work out the way you planned and you don't always strive in the way you thought you would and you end up having almost a more interesting journey along the way than the one you imagined you'd have as a kid. Hmm. It's a book that... I don't even know how to begin to describe it because I felt like, you know, when you said, like, oh, that's do, good. Do you I want, like that? Do you want to do you want to read the book before the podcast? Like, oh, that's amazing. And I'm not sure what my expectation was 
of what you were going to write. And I think that even right. touches on what you said at the beginning. Like you make a lot of different content. Um, and I think I saw a tweet saying that this book is very much an amalgamation of like big chunks of your life that you have been writing this book for a while. And now it's just the culmination. This isn't like a, a lockdown book of, all right, what's my novel? No, I think of it as, in fact, I did try to write that book, What's My Novel, uh, for many, many years and never really could get past, I guess, the halfway point because I usually write sketches and short form things and the satisfaction is so instantaneous. And to get through the middle part of a book, I'm sure anyone who's written a book can resonate. It's just a slog, man. Um, but I suddenly got something that never happens to me. I'm usually someone who works at it very diligently, but I got inspired. I got like a bolt of lightning and something just told me it's time to write a book. And I started completely over from scratch, uh, threw out the book idea I was working on and started a book that's just honestly, as I say in the introduction to it, you know, I'm at the lip of a cave trying to scratch as many survival tips into the wall before the bad guys get me. Mm. I really just at this point wanted to say something true and write a book that reflects everything I've learned through my journey that might help another human being. Hmm. Um, not a cool book that will get me a job, but a book that's going to help people and connect with people. Because uh, after all, that's what it's all about. And now in my late 30s, I realized that. Whereas before, and a lot of the book is about this, all I cared about was the object, the prize, the goal. Uh, and of course, I think a lot of us as we age learn that that's less important than you think it is. Uh, and less defined than you think it is. Goals are, are pretty nebulous. And as Vonnegut said, we don't really know enough to know what's good news and what's bad news. Mm. So you kind of just got to sit back and watch the show. And the book is a lot about that. But of course, it also has magic and robots. <laughs> and that's, that's something I wanted to talk about because, you know, you, you do um, your podcast, Tales from the Pit, which is, is my favorite podcast. I, I love listening oh, to it. Oh, thank you. Um, and Small Beans, the podcast network, was very much the inspiration for the I'm Glad You Exist network. The idea, wow. the idea that can all be like an umbrella term, like, what you know, just honor. make stuff, you know, just do yeah. it because you love it. Get your friends involved. And I, I love that. Um, and the thing is, you know, to kind of jump back to what I said before, like I've been taking in your content for a long time. And, you know, it goes from just seeing you as the presenter of a funny show. It's, this is a guy who, who makes jokes to, oh, now you know, Tales from the Pit, learning about your struggles with mental health and your identity within mm -hmm. so many things from, you know, taking acid at Burning Man to um, talking about sexuality and things like that. Yeah. You're a very, like the most open book of any content creator I've known, not doing it for like these insidious reasons of just like clickbait and just being like, I just want to share my experience of the world with people and just see who resonates with it. And I love that. And Thank it's you. interesting to me that the the climb isn't as direct as I thought it would be in the sense of the, the, ah. the choice to have the um, like the metaphor of, you know, of the universe tree and everything like that, rather than just right. like, here's my autobiography, which, you know, I would have just consumed. Why, why have almost that barrier from reality to having the, the science fiction element? Oh, my God, because it's more fun. I mean, <laughs> pretty much everything I write or sit down to intentionally write falls into a genre, a genre category. I think I'm a genre author. Sketches are different, right, because a sketch is just a game. Um, but when I do my serious writing, like my most common unit of content is a science fiction short story. I've just always been in love with sci-fi and fantasy, and I feel like 
by extracting the reality of something and getting to the idea of it, it actually sort of becomes, you know, a stem cell. It becomes more able to resonate with different people's experiences. Not that you can't ever be or would want to be or should be all things to all people. But if you're yourself as strongly as you can be, um, you're going to find other people that resonate with that. And that's what it's all about is connecting with people as far as I'm concerned. Hmm. Um, so I did it to make it fun for me to write so that I would get through it. It's also just the way my imagination works. Um, the things I like the best tend to just be incredible expressions of sheer creativity and imagination. I love, like everyone's talking about this new show on HBO, Scavenger's Reign. Have you seen that at all? I have not, no. Well, anyway, it's <laughs> you're on an alien planet. And what everyone loves about it, including me, is the ecosystem is so detailed and weird, right? Like a little creature will produce a jelly from its bum and another creature will come eat it. And you realize, oh, they're symbiotic. And that's how just weird, 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 weird. I love weird stuff and as creative as you can get. Like I want to play in the sandbox and I want to talk to the weird kid who has the idea that no one else has. Mm. Uh, just because I think that's where you find, you know, sort of illuminate the corners of life. And there's so much interesting stuff there. So I knew that it was going to be sci-fi fantasy. Ironically, I didn't know it was going to be a memoir. Hmm. I didn't know it was going to be about me. Um, it's funny how dense we can be with our own material. For example, I'll look back on my writing from 15 years ago, and it's so transparent what things I was concerned with at the time, what art was impacting me, and what I was writing about. Um, like fear of death and coming of age and things like this. But I didn't do that intentionally at the time. I just look back and see the pattern and it's crystal clear. Mm. And uh, I think in this case, I'm probably going to look back and see the pattern that I desperately needed to tell my own story. I was in more of a tales from the pit mode. I wanted to be heard uh, during parts of writing this. I was in a lot of pain and I wanted that to come through. Um, and because of that, I eventually just a little bit at a time went, maybe this guy's me. Okay, well, if he's me, then the chief is my mom. Hmm. Okay, well, I guess if this is my life now, we're going to go whole hog. And then I did things I didn't expect to do, and that's also very different for me. I usually write an outline that's very exhaustive first and then go from there, which kind of makes it more of a slog. But in this case, I did end up going back and revising and structuring things. But I surprised myself, and I know a lot of writers work that way. I don't. I never surprise myself. But this one time... Um, for example, you know, there's a character, Lakanta, uh, named after a minor character from Star Trek The Next Generation, but that represents my partner, my wife, and I had no intention of having them in there, mm. um, but they're a huge part of my life, so how could they not be? So just as I wrote, things sort of came up, and uh, I remember speaking of acid, there's a part in the book where it sort of becomes a treatise on media itself and uh, takes on the form of different media, screenplay, poetry, things like that. And uh, that came to me on an acid trip. So it was a real cavalcade of a creative process, and that's what made it probably the most rewarding writing journey I've ever had in my life. I mean, I vaguely hope to write another book someday but if this was the only one i god i sure had a hell of a time with it it was great wow. and i feel like i really did express myself in a way that feels like oh like my glands have been expressed like <laughs> that's me if you read that book you know a lot about me i, I couldn't really have put myself on the page more except as you said if i literally wrote just and then i went to cracked and then this happened which you know just i know it's not maybe it not could the be most interesting. Fascinating thing. I think it would be 
very interesting. But I'm interested in like the creative industries and how, right. you know, what we uh, what we see as observers and think, like, oh, that must be successful. And then actually hearing on the other side of it, well, no, all these terrible things were happening and personal demons and, and things like that. Um, I wonder when when you chose to go, right, well, this is now my story. Was there mm. a point when you were writing where you go, this is this is too much of me giving myself into this story? Like, am I scared of putting it out there for anyone? No. I think because I was acculturated as a cis white tall man, uh, I feel fully comfortable exposing myself to everyone. And in fact, I think they should love me for it. <laughs> I think people should. I think all of us have a great light inside of us and it's great to share it and and sharing it means sharing the good the bad and the ugly mm. so i i'm all about openness i was raised that way my parents are absurdly open my dad famously has no filter um my dad came out as gay when i was like 18 and one of the favorite family stories is of, since then you know he's told me stories multiple times like this mike you'll never believe it I was down at this warehouse downtown San Diego and this guy was blowing me and I mentioned my last name and he goes, are you Michael Swain's dad? So this dude that was blowing me really likes your stuff. So I was just raised in an environment <laughs> where nothing was off limits to discuss. Uh, my dad sort of discussed everything about politics, the world and pop culture. And my mom was there for every kind of emotional exploration that you could want. Mm. And it's just naturally continued. It's interesting because I do have a brother who's not really represented in the book um, because I don't know how he pulled this miracle off. He's just stable and normal and has no, I'm, I know he has an inner life. I don't want to denigrate him, but uh, he seems to have it all figured out and he always did. And he's very private. So, you know, you kind of go one of two ways, right? You mm. embrace what your parents teach you or you decide to do something different than that. Mm. And I think we each took one path and, and the other. What What is your expectation of his reaction to reading the book then? Ah, um, a really dry, complex dissertation on the philosophical underpinnings. Like I, he's incredibly smart, brilliant, much smarter than I am. And I think he's probably going to be very interested in it structurally mm. or he'll say stuff that makes me feel so dumb. Like, uh, you know, it's reminiscent of Foucault's 17th century treatise on blah, blah, blah. And I'll go, OK, good. <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> How neat. Did you notice um, the Star Trek reference? <laughs> exactly. So another thing I wanted to do with this book, because pop culture is my life, was cram in pop culture in a really brazen way and let people know by reading it. Look, you're also getting to know my interests. For mm. example, like there's an Arrested Development line in the opening piece, and it's because I want you to know that I love Arrested Development. Mm -hmm. That is also a true part of my personality that I'm sharing with you. And I don't think it's a trivial part. I think pop culture and content is a really special thing. It's a way that we communicate our true feelings with each other without having to honestly communicate our true feelings to each other. Mm -hmm. It makes it easier, right? It's a social lubricant. And, and the creative aspect is just a fun game. I think there's nothing more fun than thinking of like a weird bug or how a spaceship could work in a different way than the spaceships you've read about in the past, you know? Mm. So I wanted to make it very much magical realism, which is sort of my favorite genre, um, because I think we've reached an era where we are pop culture literate and we are postmodern. So you may as well do whatever you want and assume that the audience is very savvy and smart. So I put in anything I want, 
There's some very subtle pop culture references throughout that I'm sure people will never get. And then more obvious ones that I hope they do. Yeah, I felt like as I was reading, I had to resist the urge to like highlight every Simpsons and Futurama reference that I saw. Yes, there's a handful of them (laughs) in there. That's right. Um, So, you know, like we said, the the book, the book is autobiographical of, Mm -hmm. I guess, of your life from from. Well, from birth up until now, it obviously covers a, a great... I gloss over the younger years, <laughs> yeah. but yeah, it sort of starts when he's a young man. For sure. Um, as I, I was, I was reading it, it was like, oh, cool. I, I know a lot about your life from what you've presented on podcasts. You know, um, mm. I know about um, like the Montessori school background and, and things like mm. that, you know, just whatever you've said. And it made me come up with the first question, which was, you know, who is your ideal reader for this book? Is it someone who already takes in your content and does have a bit of a base understanding of you or someone who would just pick up the book with no idea who Michael Swaim is? In all honesty, I wrote it for myself. And it's one of the first times I've done that. And the book also deals with that. It's very meta. Like Mm. things about the book are in the book. Mm -hmm. Um, But... I had no particular audience in mind. I do think if you've imbibed some of my content or know the structure of my life, certain symbols will be much clearer to you. Um, But I'd like to think that you could come in blind, not know anything about me. And if you thought hard, figure out what the symbology means. Like, I'm not trying to be obscure. In fact, I released a thing called the answer key. So there's a conceit in the book that there is such a thing as an answer key that tells you the meaning of life, the universe, and everything. And of course, by the end of the book spoilers uh it's it's you're deprived of it you don't get to see the answer key Mm. so then i thought it would be fun to write an answer key so i did write an answer key that goes through and explains all the symbols explicitly and that's because i hate pretension and i like honesty and if you're trying to connect with a human being i don't i'm not saying you make it uninteresting or you don't gussy it up but why put any barriers between yourself and connecting with the human being you're trying to connect with so i like accessible art and i hope it's accessible even though I wrote it at the top of my intelligence and there are parts that are complex and there are parts that could be obscure if you don't connect the dots, Um, meaning in the true magical realist sense, there's some dream logic to it. Mm. Um, But at the same time, I'm hopeful that the messages are clear to anyone who picks it up. At least that was the goal. Mm. Um, If the message is only clear to someone who's imbibed my content, shucks, I, I missed the mark a little bit. Sure. But I'd still be very happy with it because, as I say, it was an experience and a journey I had to take myself. And the real reward was having taken it like this. The moment I finished the book, I stood up and paced around with this feeling of euphoria. I wrote a fucking book and not like a reference book, like a joke book, which I could write and have worked on and then abandoned. I wrote a fucking novel. And it's not a short little novel. It's a normal size novel. (laughs) These things are huge to me, John. This was an amazing experience. Yeah. Well, and, you know, for whatever reason, our culture still puts, you know, novelist above basically every other creative profession that there is. Right. To write a book, the thing that we still, everyone is told you have a book in you, but only few are able to actually present it, you know? Yeah. It takes diligence. Hmm. Um, The... Where do I want to go with this? There are many. Um, give me one second. I just want, because I've sure. got, basically, as I was reading, I just kind of, you can't really see, 
no, it's just black nope, screen. It's nope. just a white square. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I just made quotes of things that stood out to me. And one of the things that I love in, in one of the podcasts you do, um, Star Trek, the new, next Futurama, is going through the jokes that you that you love and just kind of like highlighting them. And I always think that's Joke-a-rama. just a nice thing. But, yeah. you know, I kind of wanted us to do something similar with this where I could just say like, these lines stuck out to me. Maybe there's something in it. Oh, okay. Um, Ooh, this will be fun or embarrassing. <laughs> uh, so on page two, I add, Sometimes Sinnoh's brain told him that when he died, he would live forever as a tiny gray speck of consciousness capable of feeling nothing for all of eternity except loneliness. That quote distills the existential crisis that I had at university about 10 years ago. And I wonder how many people that resonates with. And I wonder when was the first time you actually like felt that's what death will be. Yeah, this is one of the recurring invasive thoughts that, and there's a scene later in the book where there actually is a segment where it is directly me. I strip away the mask and I just change the character's name to Michael um, for a brief section of the book. And in that section, there's a scene in the car where he's espousing that belief. And that really happened to me and was a very hard day where I was in the car just telling my wife that, I know this, like I know this is true. I know that that's what death is. And I'm so scared because one day I will have to do that. I'm going to get there. And, uh, you know, as we talk about, all I want to do is connect. So I think my idea of hell is there's no one to, there's no one and nothing to connect to. Um, It's interesting. That idea was put in my head by my mom and she regrets it really, really badly because my mom had an incredibly abusive childhood and her parents told her that explicitly as like a bedtime story, that when the parents died, they would live together forever in heaven, but when the kids died, they would be a tiny gray speck, unable to find anything to connect with for all eternity. And my mom literally just told us that because it's part of her life story. She told, you know, when learning about my mother growing up, she said, yeah, my parents were really abusive. They said this thing to me, and you never know what's going to stick with a kid, right? Mm. So unfortunately, that lodged in my head as a young person and has never shaken loose that that is um, obviously most of the time I understand that it's just something I'm thinking and thoughts are just thoughts and feelings are just feelings. But when you're really, when I'm really in it, that is the one that is the one that fucks me up. Yeah. Mm. Is it's almost a reflection. I love deeply and the stronger I love someone, the more it hurts to imagine. What about the void of them? What about I don't have them? And, uh, you know, it's such a normal human thing, but to extrapolate beyond death, like I don't, it's even grimmer than death, right? I don't even get to rest. I'm just alone, 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 alone. And, uh, yeah, that was just my idea of hell. So it becomes a continuing refrain in the book. Um, I like repetition and I like callbacks. I think they help make symbols clearer. So the gray speck thing just became a motif woven all throughout. Yeah. Mm, Wow. And again, I think that's one of those stories. I mean, that's absolutely heartbreaking to hear that that happened to your mum. A um, child, right, yeah. yeah. Um, I had, I don't want to say a similar story, but the the existential dread for myself came from my mum being very Christian. And I was brought up with the belief that when you die, you go to heaven. And just mm. when I was at university, I just remember on my bed, thinking about the logic of heaven the practicalities of heaven and specifically like well what age are people in heaven 
Uh, Wouldn't that yes, be a weird concept if I'm older than my parents because if I'm older than I die? And just things like that. And it started spiraling down and down and down. And it was almost just like my brain went, oh, there you go. You've disproved heaven. And you can't get away from logic when you've arrived at that, right? And that and that was quite comforting for a while. And now it's gone. That comfort <laughs> is gone. Yeah, yeah I know the feeling. Yeah. <laughs> uh, right. So let's go to page three. <laughs> There's hope in the book as well. By the way. <laughs> yeah, but whatever. Uh, <laughs> so... Uh, he had once found solace in a mate's caress that felt like drilling deep into the ground and drinking the quiet inside until nothing hurt and life was lovely as sleep. I just wonder, like, writing things like that, surely there has to be, like, you don't just write that and then write the next sentence, right? Like, do you have to take a breather <laughs> after something like that and go, fuck, <laughs> how uh, am I right it, now? <laughs> it, it can be tiring. It can take it out of you. Yeah. I, I basically only wrote a couple pages of this a day, but every day until it was done. Mm. Um, I remember writing that line and liking it and and reflecting on it. And it's almost like it's almost like yo-yoing or juggling. Um, there's a delight when you do, do something you know is good or you feel is flashy and you can see it yourself. You try not to get too full of yourself and just move on. But yes, I love that sentence too. It means a lot that it stood out to you. I think mm. it's really good. Um, for the record, I just feel the need to say that is about a wonderful person that I had a brief affair with, not my ex-wife. <laughs> In case she hears this, I need her to know. <laughs> Fair enough. Good. It's good to be clear. <laughs> She's not in the book, okay. which is possibly the most damning thing of all. There is not a single symbol of my ex-wife who I was with for 12 years. Hmm. Um, and we can talk about that if you want, but uh, well, that's I mean, basically, you, you know, you're, you're writing, rest. writing this story. And like I say, it's, you know, maybe skips over formative years, but then it's like a big chunk, big chunks of your life. There's still a, a conscious choice of you to go, well, what do I want to include? And, you know, as yeah. this viewer, there's part of me being like, oh, Abe's arrived. I wonder if Dan O'Brien arrives, you know, <laughs> like, I don't know <laughs> right, who's right. appearing. No, so, Daniel O'Brien was represented by one of the grasshopper people that get hanged. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> one of them was Daniel. Okay. Uh, yeah, Abe is in it, but my dad's not in it, but mm. my mom is. Um, I just let my conscience guide me. And so it, it's sort of a crapshoot whether you made it in or not. No offense intended to any of my close, close friends who are not represented. Mm. By the way, I can't wait for Abe to read it. He hasn't yet. Oh, OK. Um, because there's a part where I describe him as a hero and a cutie pie. And I just think that will be d a delightful little moment for him. <laughs> there's, I don't know if I've saved it. It was when, one of the nights when I was reading it to my fiance. And it's so childish, but I couldn't stop myself laughing as I was reading during the Michael and Abe scene when they're actually separating and it's about that they just start 69ing each other and then and sniffing each then, other's farts yeah. yeah because their ideas are so good <laughs> that's just an encapsulation of it. i think the line that i like is for they are white men and their opinions must be known yeah. <laughs> something like that <laughs> um abe and i will talk about same brain uh he's been my creative partner since mm. the very beginning and we'll talk about how we think basically 80% the same. And then in that 20% difference, there's a lot of interest. And then this evolved as jokes, as in jokes do into us saying that our peens are the same size and shape and that they interlock. 
I don't know when that <laughs> conceit came into our lives, but I thought it's it there. should make it into the book. Yeah. Absolutely. You've got, you've got to immortalize these kind of things. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Lest your book be studied in schools in oh, hundreds yeah, of years. Exactly. Well, you know, uh, Vonnegut, who is a major influence, as I think people who have read Vonnegut can probably tell when they read this book, uh, there's a book of his called Slapstick, where a brother and sister team are the world's foremost geniuses, hmm. but only when they're sniffing each other's crotches. <laughs> like, that's how they unlock their intelligence. And I'm not saying I ripped that idea off. I'm just saying great novelists can be silly and raunchy, and mm. I think they should be. Look at Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. Not that he's a novelist. I just <laughs> fucked that up. <laughs> no, I just left it there. Writers, I, writers. I don't know anywhere near enough Shakespeare to jump in on that. I'm just going to mm-hmm. be quiet. <laughs> Um, so, well, you know, staying on the point then of, you know, omitting persons from the book, then like the, the story is so much about not just yourself, but your present day relationship and the struggles that have existed within it. And, you know, I want to talk about that in a bit, but obviously, choosing to remove a 12 year long relationship of which I'm sure there's plenty of stuff that you want to talk about yeah what what was the choice there i don't know it was an unconscious choice and i think so there's a part in the book in the screenplay section where i talk about uh who's a stand-in for my wife jen scooping some of my brains off the road because we've just been in a bad car accident and um judiciously cutting parts of my memory out uh and that sort of represents something that really happened in our relationship that we call the purge which was a very unhealthy time in our relationship because I was going through a very messy divorce. My ex-wife left me for another man and was, and cheated on me basically the whole time we were together. Uh, and when that was all falling apart was when I met my current wife. And of course it's a bad time. It's a messy time to start a new relationship, Mm -hmm. just coming off a divorce of 12 years. And Because of that, there were problems. We had the kinds of problems you might expect. For example, Jen was extremely jealous, protective, scared, threatened by the fact that uh, here we are dating for six weeks. You were with the last person you were with for 12 years. What is that like? Jen had never been in a long-term relationship, so this was all new to them. And unfortunately, one of the ways they reacted, and I was part of the dynamic, so I'm not putting the blame on them, but became, you must never mention your ex again. You must delete every poem that you wrote about them. You must burn every photo of you two together. And so I really do have a blank area in my life. I have no reminders of that person. I don't have any photos of us. I don't, I wrote a lot of short stories about them as you do. And those have all been deleted. And I regret that. I think I should have stood up for myself and I do have a right to retain my own memories, my own stories. Mm. Um, But for better or worse, At that time, I just needed Jen in my life and Jen needed me to ritually excise this person from my life. So I did that. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I don't think that's necessarily a positive thing, but it's true. So it's in the book. Hmm. Do you think then it might have been tricky to almost tap back into those memories? And if you started bringing your ex-wife into the book, almost like at what point is it appropriate to stop? Because it's it's not their story as much as they would feature in it. You know? Right. Yeah. And to me, it's also a story, like I said, about striving. That's why it's the climb. And his whole goal is to just get as high as he can is I've always been really driven and driven 
to achieve specific things. And I'm finally learning, I'm finally learning enough about life to let go of that a bit and let that defrost and realize that whatever I expected, what is happening is cool. Hmm. And even more importantly, all you get is what you get. So you may as well enjoy it and not spend a lot of time thinking about what else you want beyond just planning for your future and trying to do things you want to do. I'm trying to make a movie. I want to make a movie. But if I don't get to make a movie, I will still get life and something interesting will still happen to me if I care to take an interest in it. I'm also a big existentialist, so I believe you get what you put into something. Mm. Nothing inherently has meaning, but that doesn't mean that there is no meaning. You can create meaning and give things meaning. That's Mm. your power as a god. I believe every human is a god of their own internal universe, and you have the power to imbue things with meaning, and that meaning is real. No one can take that from you. Mm. So where was I going with this? (laughs) 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 Kind of lost my train of thought. But um, yeah, to me, a lot of it is about striving for specific goals, specifically entering the entertainment industry. Um, a lot of it is about my alcoholism and I knew I wanted to drill down into that. Mm. And then I was surprised to find out that a lot of it was about healing and that as one of the more healing forces in my life, Jen had to be in the book. Hmm. So you know that the, well, you know that the character in the story is going to get to the top, but as you're kind of describing it, you didn't really understand what the process of, of the climb was going to be. And then as you're writing it, it's this very reflective um, I'm injecting elements of my life into it and what's going to happen to the character next. Is that right? A bit. Uh, I did sort of, like, as I said, I, on an acid trip, I realized I was going to multimedia this sucker and I did sort of block out. It's like going through a dark tunnel with a flashlight. Hmm. I can see some distance ahead of me at any given time. Um, so by the time I was in the middle of the novel somewhere, I knew what the end would be. Uh, And I knew that I wanted to do certain structural things. For example, as he climbs the tree, you're also experiencing sort of a microcosm of a timeline of all evolution because he goes from um, an agricultural world to a medieval world to an industrial world to a futuristic world to a world of pure energy. Hmm. And uh, so things represent multiple things. Uh, I'll never forget learning in English class that it Lord of the Flies uh, Piggy and Simon or whatever, they can represent Jesus and Judas, but they can also represent the id and the ego and the superego. Mm. And the idea that you could, I love complexity. It's why things like Arrested Development are my favorite things. Um, I love cleverness. And so the idea that I, I knew I wanted to have things that represent multiple things simultaneously. So I wanted it to represent both the, sh- the small story of my life, but also the grand story as, as, arrogant as it is to think I can tell it of all humanity Hmm. and um, certain specifics like the way that we've lost touch with nature and the way that food has become increasingly processed and the way that story has been used historically. Stories were right at one point, stories of hell were like um, whips to keep you in line and make you behave. Um, There's other kinds of stories that are sort of programming elements designed to make you believe a certain thing. Aesop's fables, for example. Mm. So I also wanted to track the idea of story itself, which is why at some point it becomes a poem and then a screenplay and then into the future it becomes AI generated. Mm. And I want people to know, please back me up on this. I'm not lazy, though. It's AI. There's a section that's AI generated, but I think I earned it. Did yeah. I not? Uh, well, <laughs> okay, good. the thing is, I was going to ask with the AI because I was reading it and going, I find you clever enough to go, 
is he just saying it's AI and he's actually written this himself? No, no, that was it was Chat GPT <laughs> with me making edits throughout. Okay, because it's like I don't know, you know, you you tell me sure. what it is, but it of doesn't, I, you know, yeah. um, unreliable narrator. But well, actually, because there was one specific part that the AI section Chat GPT wrote, um, it was the lesson of. So I guess we should say that at the end of every um, every section of the book, there is a lesson. Um, yes, which is a very interesting Explicitly. format, um, and I love at the end that you've got the list of all the lessons. Um, and again, like some of them are very profound, some of them are just like little jokes, you know, little digs. That's right. <laughs> um, but there's one from the Chat GPT section which says, "No matter how disorientating or unfamiliar our surroundings, our ability to adapt, persevere, and find meaning is intrinsic to our human nature." And there was something kind of chilling about the hour. That a that. robot said that, <laughs> yeah. right? It's weird that a robot said that. And mm. it's not untrue. Mm. Um, I would say that a human writer could say that sentiment in a more eloquent, more clever, more interesting way. Mm. I find ChatGPT's writing pretty bland, mm -hmm. but it's not wrong. Mm. That's true. That's a good lesson. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, <laughs> my my fiance is a glutton for like trashy romance audiobooks and oh, sure. I'll, I'll be listening to them in the background and think and they're literally the books that you go fuck it i could write a book you know right, um, right. and as i'm reading the chat gpt thing i was like am i bad for being invested in this story like because i get that it's an ai is you've just put in a prompt and in seconds it's gone bang there it is I'm yeah. like, I don't know, I'm, I'm interested. I want to see what happens next. And you think, oh, fuck, is that dangerous? You know, like. Yeah, I, I mean, it very well may be. I do think we're going to get to the point where AI can write books and movies with a little help from a human. Mm. Uh, the hu I still think you'll need the human there to curate nonsense out because AI is always going to create some amount of nonsense. But, uh, you know, get scared if you're a content creator, especially a writer. Yeah, mm. <laughs> we're approaching that point. Yeah, because, well, I guess, you know, you even you go back in time, like six years, bring out this book and say like, oh, and, you know, here's the AI section. It's like, oh, well, that's that's supreme science fiction. You know, <laughs> it's right. Like, it would be it would have been mind blowing six years yeah. ago. That's how fast we're accelerating towards this point of it's interesting because we keep making tools and so increasingly sophisticated tools in theory, so that we don't have to do shit work and grunt work. Mm. But now we're going to let the robots do the creativity. Yeah, That's the yeah. fun part. That's the whole reason we made tools was mm. so we could go spend our time making art, I thought. Yeah. Now we're going to let the robots do the art. What is left? Just yeah. jerking off and playing video games. Like, that's well, it. Well, you know, because I, I was speaking to my brother about this um, and he works in IT and I hope I'm not outing him by saying this, but he's like, chat GPT can code better than I can. So why wouldn't oh my I God. Get, get the robot to do it? <laughs> you know, I didn't think of that. But you mm. could tell chat GPT to write a code block. That's really interesting. Yeah. And it's just, well, why wouldn't you, you know? Um, of course. There's so, so much input code. Mm. There's a lot of code for it to learn on. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Like, do you, I don't want to kind of go down a rabbit hole of this, but is there a part of you that because ChatGPT has written or has contributed a significant amount to the book, like is ChatGPT a co-author or is it your prompt still all makes right. you the, the total? Let's all calm down. <laughs> First of all, I wouldn't necessarily say it's a significant portion of the book. Like, I don't want people thinking it's a quarter of no, the book no, no, or no. something. It's one, one section of the book. 
And I will say the story that we end up co-authoring is entirely exactly what I wanted it to be. So I still chose the plot points um, by making the prompts very specific, right? So Hmm. I feel ownership over the story. In fact, I had already written that short story just as a straight short story, Hmm. and I decided that it was perfect for the book, but I wanted to do it through this weird AI fashion. So I'm essentially getting AI to rewrite a short story that I had already written. Hmm. And like you say, it's very transparent in the way it's presented. It's not like this would be something that could kind of skip past. Like, oh, I no, I say this. Book, you know, <laughs> I think it literally says this section was written in collaboration with AI. Yeah, yeah, yeah and it's, it's again just a wild thing. And you know, I can't imagine this is going to be the one book where that is. That's the thing, right? Like, it's. I don't know. Unfortunately. Like maybe I imagine there's a lot of people who will do it and not point it out, mm. like just try to slip it by you, which I mean, I know conspiracy theorists who already say that there have been AI written movies. Like I know people who think the Mario Brothers movie is an AI screenplay. Um, and I wouldn't be shocked. Yeah, I wouldn't be yeah. shocked, especially with the strike going on. If they didn't try to knock out some AI screenplays, I wouldn't mm. put it past them. Yeah. Which again is the big money boys is, is terrifying. Um, it's chilling, but at the same time, I, I do think, well, I like to think maybe I'm wrong. I like to think that there is something innate. There is a spark to hmm. humanity that AI will always be in our wake. Yeah. It's learning from us. It's not teaching us anything. Um, although I do believe there could come a day where mankind basically gives, I mean, I believe that there could be true sentient AI. And I also believe that if it does come about, that's cool. That's Ooh. good. I know a lot of people fear that, but I would say if if our role in the evolutionary history of Earth was to give rise to a a set of beings that, you know, can live on solar power and live in perfect concert with the Earth and not get in wars and shit, I would love that. Like mm-hmm. I'm hoping that the robots will be better than us. I don't want the robots to be like us. Mm-hmm. Um but so far, I think this is not, it's almost a misnomer to call it AI hmm. because it's not alive. <laughs> it's, no, it just, it's a very fancy copy and paste machine. Yeah. It, it presents as such, but again, like yes. superficially so, but under the surface, you notice, and, and like, again, speaking to my brother about it, it was, you know, it, it takes a word and then is able to predict like the next word that would make sense as opposed to yeah. thinking, what's a sentence I want to say? Or um, what do I care about? Or yes. what are my beliefs? It doesn't have those. <laughs> well, and I think as well, like the the industry I'm in is photography. And, you know, this was a massive discussion um, years prior to me ever getting into photography of film turning into digital and about how digital was essentially like it was taking away the the hard creative effort that made it quite an exclusive club, but a very expressionate and, you know, maybe more creative because you know, there was it was less accessible. And sometimes now when people are talking about AI, I think like, well, you know, just because something's been made easier doesn't mean that it's going to lose the heart because. Not necessarily, but there's also a romance to things. Like I said, you imbue things with meaning. hmm. My dad was also a photographer and uh, I miss the smell of a dark room. Hmm. I do. You don't need one anymore. (laughs) No. Well, and you know, um, if you were doing it as a career, it's it's very niche to present yourself as a film photographer. But film photography yeah. still thrives, you know, like they're still of making course. film, you know, and it's just like just because things become niche doesn't mean that, you know, they die out. 
you know, as for as much as clothing manufacturing has become so mass produced, there's still those those guys in Japan who have dyed blue hands, Bespoke. you know? Right, exactly. Um, yeah, it's human nature to sort of add things, but we don't often let go of things. Hmm. Like, I'm sure there's someone out there today churning butter in a butter churn. Hmm. They don't need to be doing that. <laughs> but, you know, we as long as something exists, we kind of like it to continue existing. Yeah. Uh, an example I always think of is products in the grocery store. A hmm. hundred years ago, there were something like 40 products in the grocery store. <laughs> and... We add stuff. We don't get rid of other stuff. When you invent Diet Coke, you don't stop selling regular Coke. Mm. And so as a result, now we have, you know, a thousand products in the grocery store. Mm. And that's just kind of how it goes. I wonder when it will end or if it will end. Well, it must because all things end. But I wonder what that will be like, because it does seem that for the last few chapters of human history, everything's become more and more niche, right? It's divided and divided and divided and multiplied and multiplied and multiplied. Now we have so many ways for people to connect to different communities and feel, you know, like, um, for example, my dad is a furry and he considers himself a cybernetically enhanced bear. That's pretty niche thing to be. And yet yeah. he can reach out over the internet and find other people who consider themselves to be cybernetically enhanced bears. Um, <laughs> so I wonder how niche it can get because hmm. people do want to connect. So it's never going to get down to niches of just one because that's lonely and people want to connect. Hmm. But man, we're getting pretty niche, right? Um, your hobbies can really identify you with a very small band of people. For example, as an artist, I've made my living having, okay, Cracked was the Halcyon days I had uh, not, I wouldn't say they were all fans, but millions of viewers. Hmm. Um, but after leaving cracks, I don't have that big stage anymore. I probably, by my estimate, have about 10,000 fans that are still with me and still imbibe my stuff regularly. And that's enough to make a living. I'm hmm. still making a living with, uh, off of leveraging those 10,000 fans. Uh, that's pretty niche. Uh, 10,000 is not a lot of people in this Ooh. day and age. So I do think it's kind of cool that we've gotten so niche. I wonder how much you can do that before it's just bewildering because there's also a polarizing aspect where my niche no longer understands that niche way over there because mm. it's so different than me. Um, but, you know, that's the spice of life. I think it's it's cool. Everyone should be increasingly themselves and increasingly specialized if that's what they want to be. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Um, you said something before about being an existentialist, and I think that's ridiculously coincidental because I just submitted an essay on existentialism for oh, wow. a counseling course I'm doing. Um, and there's a quote that you had here, which is just like existentialism um, distilled of uh, life is a journey. We, we all must make alone together. Mm -hmm. And again, that's one of those that just kind of hit me and it's, you know, like um, from uh, Irvin Yalom's um, comment, you know, we're born alone, we die alone. And there's something horrifying and peaceful about it. It's a real, yeah. real mess. <laughs> well, it's also interesting because in the middle there, your life, my life can be very, very different from another life. And in fact, in a way, being born and dying are some of the only things that we will all do. It's like that pooping, breathing, eating sex, hmm. being born and dying. Everything else is up for grabs. There are people in this world who have lived a life that I can't begin to comprehend the nature of their life, nor could they mine. Um, so I have tried to flip that in my head 
Mm. because the scariest thing to me, as we've discussed, is being alone. Mm. Um, so I hope that when I die, I feel some sort of kinship with all who have come and gone. Uh, let's move on. This is too scary. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, no, I, I'm actually <laughs> honestly just tickled that you're pulling out lines that I also like. It's so cool that well, these... I could get you. meta and quote yourself back to yourself to respond to yourself. Okay. Which is... Let's do it. Tough titties, little brother. No one said life was fair. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> True, That's, but it was heavily implied. Is the it was heavily line. implied. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, you know, I kind of, I messed it up at the beginning of the podcast because what I wanted to say was, you know, typically I'll ask my guests, you know, like, how, how's it going? And I get the, the, the typical response. Oh, yeah, not bad. How's it going? Yeah. And I, I wanted to say to you, like, I feel like you're maybe the one and only person that I could ask and be like, but how are you actually doing like right now? And I'm going to get the honest answer. Oh, absolutely. So are you asking that? I, I'm absolutely. I'd love to know, like in, in this moment, as we're speaking, like mm. the, uh, Wednesday, the 13th of December, how are you doing? Mixed, mixed. I'm in the middle of actually approaching the end of, I hope, knock on wood about a year and a half of trying various mood meds. Hmm. So right now I'm on a cocktail of three different <coughs> mood meds, and I'm also going into an inpatient facility twice a week to get ketamine treatment, hmm. which is, I guess, if you've taken ketamine as a party drug, yeah, it feels good. You get high. Um, but I really am over getting high. I can get high easily. <laughs> I, I, I just want to feel better. Hmm. So um, it's been a dark year and a half, if I'm being honest. And one of the issues I'm having right now, in fact, is that I'm very nervous recording this podcast. Hmm. And I've podcasted for about six years now. And I used to knock out three, four a day with no problem. I, I hope that it's just the mix of mood meds. But for whatever reason, I've been nervous doing every single podcast. In fact, I recently did something I've never done in my life, which is flake on a podcast because right. I was sitting there about to guest on a podcast and I started shaking and I just couldn't mm. do it. And if you know me, that's very unlike me. So I do feel not much like myself right now. We're trying to work through it. Um, especially I'm about to go on my honeymoon in two months and we're just trying to get me to a place of stability before that happens. Mm. Cause I don't want to be abroad <coughs> and, uh, spending thousands of dollars on a wonderful vacation and just hating it the whole time. Yeah. So yeah, mixed. <laughs> Unfortunately, um, I've been. It's been a long year. I've been in and out of mental hospitals in the last year and a half, and just trying to get back on my feet. But one of the great triumphs in my life is being able to disengage from that. Mm. It's happening, and it sucks. But it's just like being ill. I don't read into it too much anymore. I used to think. Why am I sad? What does it mean? What's wrong about my life? Should I leave my partner because I'm so sad? Should I get a different job because I'm so sad? And now I just think I'm sad today. It mm. just is what it is. Yeah. Uh, and I do encourage people to get to that point if they can and remind yourself that thoughts are just thoughts and feelings are just feelings. That doesn't make it pleasant, but it does make it more endurable. I think that's it's such a radical idea that we should be able to just accept that we can have days where it's just like, I, I just feel, I feel like shit. I feel and shit I'm today. just, I want to take yeah. ownership of that. I don't want to try and block it out and suppress it. Um, I'm, I'm someone who very much wears his heart on his sleeve. And if I feel even slightly down, like everyone, everyone's going to know about it. And I'll just get so exhausted trying to mask it that it just ends up making me sick for the next day. 
And yeah. I did something which I'd never done before in any any job, which was take a mental health day and be like, I'm not ill. Congratulations. I just, I just need yeah. a day to just like, I'm exhausted. I, I just need a time out. And it was great. And then I went back to work. Everything was good. The clients I work with all, you know, I've got the energy for them and everything. But just this idea that that's still a novel concept you know oh yeah when i flaked on that podcast and i hope the host of that podcast is not listening and figuring this out but um <laughs> i called it a medical emergency right that's the excuse i used or at least i thought it was a lie and an mm. excuse i felt ashamed of it but then after a few hours i realized and had to remind myself it was a medical emergency mm. i was having a panic attack mm -hmm. just because it's mental and not physical it's still valid and i think in this country especially in our culture um, we tend to think that if something's just in your head, then it's just in your head. That's all it is. Um, mm. But your head, look who's telling you that. Your head is everything. Your head is your whole experience. So mm. uh, as someone who struggles with mental constructs, I'm never going to. And, and I've tried to increasingly give myself permission to take those things seriously and admit to myself that this is how I am today mm -hmm. and I don't have to be on. Um, I'm also a big wear hard on sleeve guy and people can always tell because I'll just be in the corner going <sighs> and stuff like that. Right. Yeah. Um, and sometimes, sometimes that is really hard and it impacts the people around you as well. Like mm -hmm. I know um, I've been having over the last year, there was a six month period where the cocktail of meds I was on caused me to have these very violent episodes, not violent at anyone, violent at myself, hitting mm -hmm. myself in the head, crying, falling to the ground in a fetal position, screaming and screaming until the neighbors come over and ask what's wrong. Mm. Um, and that's going to impact my wife too, right? That impacted our relationship in very real ways. But at the same time, I don't gain anything by stifling it or choosing to ignore it or trying to block it out. Mm. Uh, I've tried that. I tried that for years and it works better to be honest with others and yourself about what's going on. And that's really why I started Tales from the Pit is I think it's kind of wild, I guess, because I was raised that way. I think it's wild that when people say, how are you doing today? Everyone just says, fine. Mm -hmm. I always have thought that's really weird. Uh, so I sort of started Tales from the Pit because I thought, well, it's not. And I'm I'm glad that comes through because it's really not for attention or mm. to be self-serving. It's in the hopes that someone will hear it and go, oh, it's okay that I have that. It's okay that I feel that way. It's not okay. It's not great, but I'm not alone in that, right? Mm. I think there's such a, a beautiful shared kinship within the Tales from the Pit episodes, you know, where yeah. it feels like, you know, and I, I'm not, I listen to a fair amount of podcasts, but I'm certainly not out there searching. Like I've got the ones that are, these are the ones that I engage with. I'm happy with that. And I just kind of absorb, absorb those. So there might be other mental health podcasts I see uh, out sure. there that are doing a similar thing, but it's funny. Oh, sure like there are. Well, you know, even, even in Jersey, Jersey is a relative, a very small place. And there's only like a handful of people doing podcasts and like, you know, props to any of them who do it because it's so much effort, you know? <laughs> you know, you start off making a couple of episodes and then you're like, oh shit, is anyone listening? And then you lose the inspiration, all that jazz. And then you realize, wait, every week means every week. Yeah. Even if I don't feel like it, I have to do an episode. Yeah. 100%. But you know, it's always interesting that, especially with guys that I know, the, the desire to do a mental health podcast is like, that's where they start. And I'm like, well, that's awesome. Like, go for it. And 
yeah. more often than not, it's like a couple of episodes and then it kind of just drops. And it's like, I think you just needed to vocalize your mental health. And that's absolutely fine, you know? And mm. just creating those spaces, like Tales from the Pit clearly does that, where you bring on people with some quite like, again, like niche mental health and, and you know, just areas of life. Um, and right. You get to hear and and different from my own experience, 100%, right? 100%, um, yeah. Working on an episode right now about schizophrenia, which is not mm. something that I have experience with but I like to think that I can interview someone about it in a sensitive enough way. And so, yeah, Tales from the Pit's very much like, let's all get in the mud. Come Ooh. on, get in here. The depression's fine. Everyone come. <laughs> well, and one of the, the most profound episodes of that is the one you did with um, Soren. And the, the idea that episode of... is called Stable Genius. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, do you want to, you know, again, give a, a quick pitch for what that episode is from yourself? Sure. Well, <laughs> Soren, I'll tell you actually a little anecdote, which was that I was standing outside the cracked offices smoking a cigarette under what we called the cigarette tree where everyone smokes cigarettes. And Soren, who doesn't smoke, was just standing chatting. And I and he mentioned uh, that I wrote a story or something. I did something about my mental health struggles and he found it really moving. And I asked about times he's been depressed and he said, oh, I don't know that I ever have ever Ever. Uh, can you believe that? I can't imagine that. And he said, you know, I grieve. I'm sad when something sad happens, but all my feelings seem to comport to reality. I'm, all, I'm sad when something sad happens. I'm happy when something happy happens. And beyond that, he said, my life has unfolded pretty much exactly like I expected it to. And he's the only person I've ever met to claim that ever. So we did a Tales from the Pit called Stable Genius that's just about What's that like? What's it like <laughs> to have no major mental problems? Yeah. It's cuz that's even though. to me that's probably rarer. Yeah. That's rarer than having <laughs> mental problems. <laughs> Absolutely. Like, you know, you listen to the episode and it's almost like this person's fictitious. Like where <laughs> where is their normal, you know, everyday strife and struggle and the anxiety of life? What like, part of them is broken? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, I just love it. Um, I like well, he's going bald now, so at least we got something on him. So maybe check in with him in, in a few years and then yeah. he's in the pit. <laughs> After it's all gone to shit. That's right. Um, Losing his hair is step one. <laughs> perhaps perhaps we can talk a little bit then about kind of career trajectory. If we leave leave the book for a second. Sure. Um, you know, you, you, mentioned, you mentioned Cracked and it's clear like even the, the Cracked alumni, as it were, you know, the, all you guys who were such big figures within Cracked.com who have moved on like it's still clearly part of your like persona or you know your your shared history obviously um it's like you said before you know you've got about 10,000 fans and i i don't know i reckon well how how what percentage would you say are from cracked versus have organically found you since oh my gosh it's got to be 90% or more mm. yeah um basically cracked's flagship show cracked after hours i think earned me 9,000 of those fans uh, and, you know, at some time there were probably 50,000 <coughs> fans, but the ones that have you sort of whittled down, it's very humbling and striking how you can have you can be on a big website and have millions of fans. But if you just tell people I'm moving my content from this channel to this channel, mm. you will lose 90 percent of them. And that's just because think about your think about the people who make content that you admire 
there's probably only one or two that you love so much that you'll seek them out wherever they go. Mm. Um, other people, you, if their show stops, you stop watching it and you forget they exist. Um, so I think you really only keep your hardcore fans when you move off of a big site like Cracked. And I actually think that's awesome mm. because I will say the community I now have is... And I'm not just saying this to gas them up. It, they feel like family. It feels mm. very special to me, especially the people that I have known as commenters and as people that I've interacted with. Um, you know, there's a guy, Doc Garby, who's been with us since the beginning. And we he started out just as a regular commenter on Cracked. And now we're at the point where we've exchanged letters and I've sent him, you know, drawings to mm. cheer him up. And he's sent me little trinkets to cheer me up. And um there's just again just connecting with people and i think i've actually done a good thing which is burnt off all of the people who just kind of liked me mm. and now i'm down to the ten thousand fans who really get it mm. <laughs> that's uh, such a beautiful way of putting it because i think there was a lot of solidarity especially maybe because of the nature of the way cracked kind of imploded yeah there was this kind of scramble of you know i kept seeing on twitter all these people saying like I'm now out of out of a job, you know, hire me for this and everything. And I think a lot of us kind of seeing, you know, all right, who's going which way? Who do I have to subscribe yeah. to? Who do I have to follow? And, you know, wanting to support people that, you know, we enjoyed. We enjoyed their content. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, like I say, kind of sticking with them through the years. And I guess the struggle being you almost, you get that, you know, it sounds horrible, but almost like the charity aspect of, look, you're going through something. I want to be there to support you. Right, right now, now you're stable. You're creating content. Now you're back to being the content creator. You've got to keep making things to kind of... Keep my interest. Yeah. yeah. And the onus is back on you. Well, it's, it's tough because it's... Well, sorry, just to cut you off there. No, just, go ahead. But, um, you know, it is a one-way relationship in that sense, isn't it? Like, we connect because you make stuff for me, not because I'm <laughs> making stuff for you. So it is, it's an interesting relationship. Yeah, except in rare cases. That's right. Um, I was just going to say I lost it. Oh, I lost sorry. it. I'm sorry. Do we have another question? That <laughs> <laughs> was just, just me talking about crap. Um, well, okay, oh, I so remember. I remember. Now I'll cut you off. Turn about is fair play. <laughs> um, I was just going to brag for a second and say Please. that I also really do think Cracked, the golden age of Cracked, was a very special amalgam of amalgamation of talent mm. uh i i would compare it to like you know the good years of the national lampoon or something and mm. i think that's proven by the fact that i'm basically a small fry i think in the whole crack diaspora like robert evans has gone on to do behind the bastards which is one of the top podcasts in on the face of the earth mm. um, daniel o'brien is now a multiple emmy winner cody johnston has a show on youtube called some more news that rivals shows on tv right mm. like he can argue that he gets as many viewers as john oliver does and that's pretty mm. crazy too so uh yeah cracked cracked is showing up the cracked people are still out there doing great things for sure mm. but it's funny because to me and i think if you got a bunch of cracked fans in a room it's like you're still the face of it and i think it's because you know obviously after hours was a sh was i think a daniel or i daniel or i yeah well you know in the sense of I mean, maybe it's me, my own rose-tinted glass, glasses of, like, crack TV. Like, that being, like, that was the in, the intro to everything else after that. And then Agents yeah. of Cracked and things like that. And it was just, you know, it was always 
your face and your voice. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I just, I, I think it's an interesting one that it's just the perception of crack to me that it's your importance in it can't be understated. And I don't, I'm not trying to just, <laughs> just gas you up too much. Sure. But it's like, yeah. but it's in watching everyone else, you know, kind of they're going off in their own paths. It's like, there's something so intrinsically interesting about what you're doing because it's always had this vulnerability that the others it's not, you know, I don't know. Oh, well, certainly Daniel is not about showing no. his internal <laughs> feelings and thoughts. He's about showing off his clever muscles and he's great at it. Hmm. Um, yeah, I've just always been the oversharer for whatever reason. And I guess it does make sense because of the power of video. So I think of people like Jason Parjan as the real godfathers of Cracked because they handled all the listicles. And I had a column and I wrote listicles, but the listicles got... 10, 20, 100 times the traffic that our videos did. Mm -hmm. So interestingly, even our videos, some of which got 3, 4 million views, were still niche compared to the articles. The articles would get 10, 15, 20 million reads. Um, so that's, that's cool. I love hearing it. I would love to be the face of crack for the rest of my life. I will never regret that. Um, and I think that's just largely because Abe and I founded the video department. Basically mm. our sketch troupe, those aren't muskets was hired on mass by cracked, including a bunch of the actors we already worked with. They were like, well, you guys have a troupe, just come be our video department. Mm. And as a result, we were told to do whatever we want. All we care about is that you produce content at an incredible clip. We need a, we need five videos a week and there's only three of you here. So, um, that was actually an incredible experience because I was forced to make, Thousands of sketches, literally over a thousand. So not thousands, but we've added it up before and it's over a thousand. Um, there was a point at which we were pretty confident that we had produced more sketch comedy than any other entity online. Uh, and that means a lot. And it, and it really sharpens your skills. It was like the best education I could have hoped for. And it was a whole decade of it. Hmm. So I do feel very confident. I feel very unconfident in almost every arena of life, but as a writer, I'm very confident in my abilities. And that's not bragging. That comes from a place of having earned it just by doing it a lot. Anyone mm. could do it. Um, but if you do it a lot, you get pretty good at it. I suppose it's a, a strange duality then because, you know, having heard you talk about the, what kind of happened within Cracked, like the, the almost like the mismanagement of it, um, it seems like, you know, being presented with that idea, like your sketch troupe, come and make sketches for us, just do that. And then this, this workload you're presented with is, would it be right in saying that at the age you guys were, it's kind of like, oh, we can do this, you know, like this is, this is the gravy train, let's go. And then over That's time right. going like, what the fuck did we say that yes to that for? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah, we would stay up all night shooting little web series and it was so freeing and fun. But at the same time, we were running to Michael's to get all our props. We were making our costumes ourselves. I was acting in something, but I was also the grip. So when mm. they said cut, I would break the lights down and move the lights to the new location, set up, get my costume back on and act. Um, uh, the first 20 episodes of Cracked TV I produced for $50 an episode. <laughs> and I don't mean, I'm sorry, I don't even mean produced. I mean, I was paid $50 per episode for producing that content. Um, so it's funny cause it started out, you know, you don't know shit when you're that young. Mm. It started out with us thinking this is the gravy train, 
by the end of 10 years, we thought they're ripping us off. We should have way more money. <laughs> we should have more and, gravy. Uh, right. And of course, and that's how you get things like Starship Icarus, or if people are familiar with some of the Crack Studios projects, they actually mm. started to give us real budgets and letting us do like television quality stuff, which was phenomenal. Mm. Um, and then, of course, right before it imploded, the money turned off suddenly, and we were like, what does this mean? And then mm. they said, you're all laid off. <laughs> Gee, thanks. It was uh, a good day. <laughs> Where- oh, you know what? I'm sorry to interrupt, but just I always have to bitch about it because it's so <laughs> oh, mm, irksome. I quit cracked. I'm the only one who quit. I Mm. quit two weeks before everyone got laid off, meaning I abdicated my entire severance, which would have been on the order of like 30 grand. I just let it go by a margin of two weeks. Ouch. Ouch. How how, how did that feel? Um, It felt like I had finally stood up and done something that I had wanted to do for about two years. And again, like, it's not to denigrate my time there. I think Cracked is the most special time of my life. Mm. But nevertheless, the last two years or so, I was desperate to leave. Uh, and that was for personal reasons, mental health reasons, um, the fact that I had started secretly drinking a lot of alcohol and uh, my life was sort of spiraling and I just didn't want to be there anymore. On the one hand, I'm proud that I quit because I, it took courage for me. I had, never, I had never quit something, especially something that's been so good to me. Mm. But to take the step and say, I'm ready to move on to something new um, was a big deal. At the same time, of course, it's one of my greatest regrets of all time. <laughs> well, yeah. I, I wanted suppose, that money. I yeah, could use well, that money. Of course, you can't, yeah, you can't undersell 30 grand. But I suppose, you know, is there almost a you needed to be the person to essentially break up with Cracked to get out of the toxic relationship so that you could have that lesson with you for moving on in the future. Absolutely. Even though it, even though I abdicated the money, there are other Cracked people who were like, you really did it right, man. Cause mm. you, it's, it wasn't, you can't break up with me. I break up with you. Fuck you. <laughs> you know, you're fired. Yeah. Um, and that does give you some cred, even though mm. you don't get the paycheck. Maybe this is too big a question to kind of answer in a, in a, a quick soundbite, as it were. But, you know, just jumping back to what you're saying about where you began with Cracked and essentially being treated very unfairly, but gaining so much from it. Where do you stand with the idea of cutting your teeth in the creative industry? Like I, when I went to university, we had a huge thing about, you know, you should never work for free you know, you've got to, you've got to demand professional prices and everything. And it just sat so counterintuitive to what I was actually seeing, which was people working for free on projects that looked interesting to them, just so they could get the experience, make sure it was what they wanted to do, and create stuff because it's like, you're making it for passion, not profit. And mm-hmm. then you develop that professional awareness. But at the same time, like, I'm not advocating that anyone should not get paid for the work they put into something. Right, because it's important. Right. But the creative industry has always been this this mixed bag of one for them one for me kind of thing but i wonder what what is your perspective on that no one said life was fair <laughs> um, yeah i think that's the case i i ooh i hate to encourage anyone to exploit themselves and in fact it's a tremendous privilege to even have the ability to be creative in your spare time and yet you can still make rent and eat food right mm. So I was blessed enough to have enough resources to spare that I could work for free. And 
I never could have gotten where I got without working for free for at least the first two, three years of my career. Mm. So even though I encourage everyone to advocate for themselves and for fairness, there's no substitute for the experience you get by doing it, making mistakes, learning from those mistakes and doing it again. And if you're only getting reps in when you're being paid, you're not going to get enough reps in. You should be doing the thing you want to do in your spare time as well, even if you are getting paid for it. Mm. Uh, in fact, you know, we talk a lot about, and I'm sure there's people working on oil derricks rolling their eyes, but <laughs> when you are in a content creator industry, you work surprisingly hard mm. because every second of every day, you're fearing that it will suddenly go away because it's just a number on the internet. Who knows? Mm. You know? Um, eventually you start to get to know the people as real people, but at first you're just like, I throw something into the void and then a number that determines my worth comes up. Is it 10,000? Is it a million? <laughs> who knows? And who knows why? That's the other thing is even after 10, 12 years, it cracked. We could never predict which sketch was going to be huge and which sketch was going to tank. Ooh. So it really is just a crapshoot. And yet you're on tenterhooks, you know, waiting to see that number and see if the comments are positive. Um, so I encourage people to follow their passion. I do encourage anyone listening to this to at least self-examine. Am I good enough to get paid yet? Am I beyond the point where I'm learning? Is my skill? I mean, really, at the end of the day, am I making someone else money? Then I mm. should make money. Mm. Uh, that's really why I regret Crack TV. I don't regret Crack TV, but I regret accepting $50 an episode because I was working, you know, maybe 20 hours of manpower to produce an episode, mm. including writing, shooting, editing myself. And uh, that was making someone thousands of dollars. <laughs> and so it is odd to not get paid for that. And I do encourage people to stick up for themselves. But it's a double-edged sword because I don't think you can make it in the content creator industry unless you're willing to pump out content at a prodigious rate, mm. no matter what, whether you're getting paid or not. And that feedback that you mentioned is kind of crucial as well because it can be so defining. Because I remember when Cody Johnston joined Cracked or, or became ah, more, yes. and it's just like the vitriol that hit him was like every article or video that he was in was posted Every comment was just like, this guy sucks. And they just hated him, fire Cody, all of these things. And now, like you're saying, hosts a new show that is extremely popular. And and people, I think, completely associate him with Cracked. He's considered mm. one of the standout Cracked. I mean, his, his comedic acting is very special to me. Like, I think he was one of the standout actors at Cracked because he has such a unique and weird sensibility. Look no further than the Star Wars series he wrote and starred in where he mm. played Jank Sunmooner. <laughs> Cody has got, like, this silly, in-your-face energy, really sarcastic, really uh, acidic, and I think it's just great. And, yeah, there's just something about change. People don't like change. I, mm. We couldn't believe it. It was shocking. And yet, after a couple of years, it turned around. And then a new person would come in and then they'd get it. And it's mm. funny, uh, I'm in between gigs right now. And one of the freelance jobs I'm doing is voiceover for a YouTube channel called Weird History, where I just mm. talk about interesting history factoids and I'm the voice of the video. And every single comment is, who is this guy? What is his voice? Get him out of here. We want the old guy's voice. Mm. And I don't even know who the old guy is, but I know they <laughs> like him better because they're used to it, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so it just goes with the territory, but... 
I, we were fortunate enough to be the original faces of Cracked, so we sort of mm. got grandfathered in. Well, we were all shocked. We were shocked the way Cody was treated. And well, it did impact him. It impacted his mental health for that year, you know? It was a I rough bet. year for him. Yeah. Well, and, and that's a perfect segue for the... I don't think I've heard you speak about what it was like at IGN because the comment section for those videos was fascinating to me because you had this Cracked Faithful that followed you like, oh shit, Michael Swain's the voice of this At IGN, wow. And and then other people were like, fuck this guy. You know, and again, the the exact same comments you're talking about, the code. Yeah, screw this guy, I want Damon. Why? Because he's who we had before. I'm used to it, that's all. I'm used to it. (laughs) But And the thing is, knowing what I perceive to know about you, I was just like, there's no way that you're just like, oh, I just don't check the comments, I'm sound. I was like, no, 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 you're getting nailed by those, I'm sure. Um, and that's in the intro of the novel as well is I think the novel might be one of the first things I've ever truly written for myself because Mm. all writers like to say, I would write even if no one ever read it, I wouldn't, I'm writing to connect with people. And if there's no one, if, if no one's reading it and no one cares, then why did I write it? I really Mm. feel that way. Uh, and I know you're not supposed to feel that way. You're supposed to be a true pure artist and you would write even in a void, but I wouldn't writing is an exercise in trying to convey some information to another unit of humanity. If you're not, if there's no one on the other end, does, you know, does the tree make a sound sort of thing? So, Mm. Uh, I do think I'm very invested in comments and feedback. I really care about maintaining those 10,000 fans I have. You know, they're my livelihood. So I listen to them and I try to respond to them. At the same time, I try to remember that people want something surprising. Um, People want something that's familiar and yet has enough unfamiliarity to be engaging and exciting. So if you're just asking your audience, hey, what do you guys want to see next week? And then doing it. I think mm. you're doing your audience a disservice. You should, there needs to be a balance between serving the audience and listening to the audience, but also knowing that you're the content creator for a reason. They're coming to you for a reason, and they want something fresh and original, some kind of perspective that they haven't heard before. Mm. Uh, it's a tricky balance to hit because, you know, if you do something like be a comedian for 15 years and then write a very serious novel, like let's say my novel had no jokes in it, I think that would be a misstep uh, strategically, right? Yeah. People, people do know you for a specific tone or vibe, and I think you have to stay in your lane to some degree. At the same time, I produce a lot of eclectic content, and that's the way I like it. And I actually have been told by several friends, it limits your audience. Uh, like you have a smaller, o- let's, like I have a smaller audience than Cody Johnston, and for just because we were talking about him. Hmm. And Cody has told me in private moments, like I've asked, I've asked my friends like Robert Evans and Cody Johnston, am I doing something wrong? Is there a reason I haven't blown up to the degree that you've blown up? And their uh, advice is uniformly the same, which is, you know, you should just find whatever is your biggest hit, like one upsmanship, your video game podcast, that's hitting hard. Just do that. Just only do that every week. And that is what you are. I just can't do it. It's too boring to me. So we produce like 18 different podcasts and I add new podcasts whenever I feel like it. And they'll be about esoteric topics. And if you don't like it, don't listen to it. Mm -hmm. I don't care. So I think you have to strike a balance between making it fun enough for the audience that they keep coming back. You don't stop doing one-upsmanship. But at the same time, I just couldn't survive without doing the weird stuff I like to do. So It's tough, isn't it? Because you kind of, you take the hit of not being able to exponentially blow up your brand by doing that one thing that you're like you know that's that's the big hitter but like I say like to someone like me 
your brand is you're the eclectic creator i don't know what you're going to bring out next right. is it another book uh podcast of an author i've never read before and now i'm, I'm less learning about this thing or you know who knows what it's going to be i like that um and you could say that you know the the inverse is is if you're well do you do you compare internet content creation to like terrestrial like tv and stuff you know tv shows run their course they they do yeah. so many seasons and then then they dip you think of something like some more news well like the content will always be there there's always going to be some more news but how long are they going to want to do it for and how long is the audience going to invest itself in it because it's like their videos right. are like two and a half hours and i watch them you know they're fucking amazing <laughs> but there there surely is a diminishing part where people go oh i've stopped watching you know all of them oh, i've not i watch a little bit and then you know like it just naturally goes its course that's that's fine right. and then what do you do and it's yeah i guess it's the difference right because you're the one who's who's i, I really don't i had this moment where i just thought is this just me being like michael swain's the best everyone needs to stop listening to <laughs> everyone else but my point just being that you've fine got me. multiple strings so you can kind of keep dipping into little bits and pieces and if you've got like the the basket with all your eggs in it that's great and then eventually when that basket of eggs runs out of eggs what do you do next and yeah. i don't know maybe someone news pays well enough it's like i'm fucking retiring and that's me done like all right cool someone news pays quite well which is the reason that cody is determined to do it longer than he otherwise would mm. but i he's confided in me that you know being buried only in the news all the time can oh, be discouraging and depressing in itself, right? Anyone who's been paying attention to the news in this country especially knows it's not all, like, great news. <laughs> so um, it can be discouraging sometimes, especially for someone like Cody, who is so multifaceted. He just released an album of music. No mm. one cares. Uh, mm. I care. He cares. But, you know, my point is his brand has become its brand, and everyone's doing what they need to do. I respect everyone, but for my money, I'm pleased to make a lesser living doing weirder stuff. I'm happier mm. that way. And I do hope that putting all those irons in the fire is to my advantage. And so far it seemed to work out. Like when I lose a job, when I lose an IGN job, I can turn to a film project that's spinning up or I can turn to, like I mentioned, I'm really excited about, I wrote my first comic book and it's in illustration right now and we're gonna drop that. I think that's really cool. Um, so I'm always trying to have at least eight or nine things going at once. Yeah. Hmm. Well, perhaps then we could touch on uh, Papa Bear before we wrap up, because that seems to be like, you know, you've you've released the book. And I, I don't know what the the intention for the book in terms of publication is like, because you've you've released it. It's online. It's available to purchase. Um, but I suppose it's different than, say, like Jason Pargen is when his books come out, obviously. Yeah. But like, what is your, like, is that, that done now? Or, you know, how does I, it work? I will say something that I do wonder is there's so many books in the bookstore. Hmm. A lot of them are very bad and stupid. And I, <laughs> I know that my book is good enough to be published and be a physical book, hmm. but there's no step I can take that I'm aware of that will cause that to happen. So I want it to be published in physical form. I think it deserves to be published in physical form. Mm. But short of doing an Amazon thing, which I will probably eventually do, where it's, you know, pay 
a pretty exorbitant fee and you can get a physical copy printed on demand and Michael only gets a couple cents on the dollar mm. um, and Amazon is mostly profiting. I'll still probably cave and do that because there's people who will only read it if it's physical. Mm. There's people who aren't down to read a 300-page PDF and I totally get that. At the same time, I really fucked myself because my book has full-color illustrations embedded in the text itself. Mm. And I don't know how that will work or indeed if that bars it from ever being published. It may well. Um, mm. So right now I'm working on a version of the book where I, I'm actually rewriting the symbols section and I'm rewriting sections so that it's all text. Uh, oh, for example, okay. there's a section in the screenplay section where I talk about Kurt Vonnegut drawing on a chalkboard. And both for the audiobook version and eventually a published version, I actually haven't figured out yet how to describe the lines mm. that he draws on the chalkboard. It's so much easier to just show them. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I people out there who are interested in the book but prefer audiobooks or physical books, just know that the audiobook is coming next. It'll take oh, me cool. several months, but it's coming. And then the physical book is something that may or may not happen. And when it happens, it's going to be some kind of print-on-demand thing. I, mm. I submitted the book to as many publishing people as I have through my network. No one ever got back to me. I mm. think that's that. Um, something that actually is a great source of lack of confidence or something I think about a lot that makes me feel bad about myself, let's say that, is that I've never been able to get any kind of representation. And my understanding is that step one is getting a writing agent, but mm. I've never been able to land a manager or agent, either as an actor or writer. And I'm not sure why, because... <coughs> I feel confident saying I'm very talented and I'm easy to work with. Hmm. So I'm not sure why, but uh, yeah, there seems to be some kind of barrier between me and ultimate success, <laughs> which is in part why I wrote the book about, about how I have achieved success and success is relative. And you need, again, you can't compare your show to anyone else's show because everyone's show is entirely unique. So hmm. really you're here on earth to experience and uh, not to force the universe to comport to a specific plan. It's just mm. not going to happen. With the book, then, if you had to describe what success means to its creation, yeah, have you already hit that by proxy of the fact you've written it, it's out there, people have enjoyed it, and you're getting that feedback from it, you're creating that connection that you say, that's why you write? Or is there another level where you're like, if I can just get to that, if it's physical or whatever, then yeah. it's successful. Then I'm, then I can put that to bed. Well, as I said, I'm between gigs, so there's a financial incentive. I have my own personal goal that I'd like to sell a thousand copies between the PDF and the audiobook, and mm. I think you know that's one in ten of my fans buying it, which is pretty dreamy. I probably won't even get there, but um, that's more for financial reasons. Like that's how much money I need to not eat into my savings. So that's what I would like to see. I think in the grander sense that you're asking about, yes, I've already achieved it because even though I said I wouldn't write in a vacuum and I do need to connect with someone, one is enough. Hmm. One is enough. And um, I've sold 81 copies of the book so far, which well, is not nice. great numbers. But at the same time, uh, of those 80 people, I'm sure some of them really loved it. I'm sure it connected with at least one of them and one Absolutely. is enough. Yeah. <laughs> so I'll take it. I mean, you know, you're, you're obviously from a world where you're dealing with literally internet numbers in millions and things like that, you know, but I think it's always, it's got to be nice to kind of 
come back to you like I do this podcast it does not hit big numbers and the first time I saw that two people had listened all the way through an episode I was like two people gave me an hour and a half of their time that's so cool small numbers are big numbers like Mm. I understand that our our perspective becomes skewed but for example uh most of our podcasts get five or six thousand listens imagine six thousand people in a venue listening to you that's enough. Mm. I should feel good about that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I know because, um, oh, now am I getting confused? Because hmm. Cra- Cracked did do live episodes of the Crack podcast, didn't it? Yes, briefly. Yes. Towards the what, end. I mean, was that something that was actually financially viable? Or was that something that was just for fun? You know, is that something that Small Beans could ever entertain? Was that, is Ooh. that... I'd love to do live small bean stuff at like podcasting conventions. I've, I, I think it's just laziness. We haven't looked into it or applied to any, but there are podcast festivals where everyone does live episodes and I'm sure we could get in Mm. if we tried. Um, That's a good idea. I'm going to write a note. We should do a live episode, but um, (laughs) I would say at cracked, there were halcyon days where we were making the company so much money that they would do fun stuff that we wanted to do just to keep us happy. Mm-hmm. For example, we were all really interested in trying stand-up comedy, so we created a stand-up show that we toured around the country. And by around the country, I mean we went to like three places, like you know Tennessee, uh, Michigan, and L.A. We did shows in. I mean, but that is across the country, so <laughs> it, it is. We flew, and I'm saying that was all on Cracked's dime. And there's no way that the money guys wanted to do that they were keeping us happy but i'm glad they did because those are some of my favorite experiences like shout out to beloit beloit michigan uh where it was like negative 10 degrees and we did a show (laughs) in the basement of a frat house and it was great got drunk and fell asleep under the pool table (laughs) and that'll be a cherished memory for someone oh yes (laughs) um so cool can we can we touch on what's happening with Papa Bear then, and I'll let you let you Absolutely. escape to whatever it is you're doing with your day. <laughs> I'll tell you what it is. I just got a note that said your PayPal login code is blah blah blah, but I'm here talking with you and not trying to log into PayPal, so I better go Fun. check that out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so book is done, but now you've got your sights set on a film that you're making with aforementioned Abe Epperson. Um, what what is the process progress of the film at the moment well we had to wait out both the strikes so that really delayed us a long time currently the progress is that we have x amount of money in the bank um as i said i have no filter and tell everyone everything if they ask so we've got about 250 grand in the bank we have a deal with a company called slated by which they are going to introduce us to their network of investors who specifically are interested in investing in indie film so we're hoping to raise another 500k through that uh but regardless whether we do or don't we're going to make the movie um especially because there was a crowdfunded portion so we owe it to those people to make something Hmm. Um, so right now we're going through the process, which I've never been through before of having a real casting director go out to really famous people and getting them to read our script and say no. (laughs) Um, but eventually, (laughs) eventually one will say yes. And then we will start talking to investors and saying, so-and-so is the star of this movie. How much money will you give us? Hmm. Um, because they're bankable at the box office or what have you. And then we're hoping to shoot in April, May. 
and have the thing screen in festivals, uh, you know, back half of 2024. So the story story of Papa Bear is is what you mentioned earlier about your dad coming out as a coming as a, out as a gay furry. Yeah, it's that one. It's that story. Yeah. How I mean, again, you're you're someone who is so open about your life and your experiences. Um, is there again any amount of vulnerability of oh, am I sure that I want to tell this story because it's so personal, not just to me but my family as well? Like, did you need your dad sign off to say like I want to tell the story? I feel like I did need that sign off and I did get it. Um, and I would say even more sensitively, there's a character in the film based on my foster sister who underwent a sexual assault. And of course she sort of helped me write that piece, which I think is the only way I would have felt comfortable speaking to that, especially cause it really happened. Oh, wow. Um, so yeah, I got everyone's permission, everyone living or, or, I mean, there's a couple dead people represented and I didn't get their permission, but otherwise I feel pretty confident telling the story and I'm not going to piss anyone off. My dad's read several drafts and he's cool with it. Okay. Sound. And in yeah. terms of like being protective of the story itself, when it comes to like the casting, would you ever kind of, I mean, do you have the power to be like, no, 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 that, that person, that's not my dad. Or are you just like, well, if they say that that's who he is, then that's who he is. If they're famous enough, then I'm going to say yes. And okay. I'm going to rewrite the script to fit. So that's the other thing is the cheapest thing to change in a movie is the script itself. Mm. So, um, you know, you might be thinking, how can you possibly make a movie for 250 that you wanted to make for 800? Well, it would be a very different movie, but we have prepared both rea for both realities. Uh. Let's say every famous person says no. And all we get, all we get, all we get is a no name actor who's very talented that's enough. I just want the movie to be good. Um, mm. But that said, yes. If any of these famous people says yes, we're going to rewrite the script to match whatever they are. And if we end up getting no more money than we already currently have, we're going to rewrite the script so that it just takes place in, you know, what if they're trapped at a furry escape room and the whole thing takes place in the one location? What about that? Um, and what if it all takes place in real time and it's an mm. hour and a half in one location? We could still tell roughly the same story uh, and we have that draft of the script in our back pocket. We ju we're just hoping not to have to make that version, of course. We want to make the bells and whistles version. I suppose it, it's going for that mentality of restrictions breed creativity, right? And actually by going, what do we have available to us to use? Yes. We will make, make the film. Um, I don't want to put you on the spot, but is you know, for context, maybe because those numbers can either seem like incredibly low for a film or holy shit, that's, you know, a quarter of a million. What What's a comparable film budget, a film that has uh, something around that? Right. That well, I mean, famously, Blair Witch Project was made for like 50 grand. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and they cleaned up. Um, that's going to be an Abe question. I don't, he's the okay. one who tracks what budgets are. All I know is that 800 K in, in the industry is considered what they call zero budget. It's <laughs> below low budget. It's zero budget. That's how expensive films are now Jeez. is that that's considered nothing. I mean, everyone we've talked to is like, that's nothing. Mm. Uh, slated is very confident they'll get us 500 because to them that's chump change. Oh, wow. So at the same time, 250 grand is more money than I've ever had at my disposal ever mm. and probably ever will. And yet it's almost nothing when you consider the expenses of making a film. So that's it's so, just the nature of the so beast. Bizarre. Yeah. So what is the timeline then? Like when, 
when can you ex- when are you hoping to like start seeing it all kind of coming together what's realistic it's hurry up and wait and then it's go 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 so basically we're just sitting tight waiting for our lead to be cast but once the lead is cast we are then immediately in overdrive and trying to shoot as quickly as possible because especially if you have a relatively famous name as the lead one of the ways you can afford them is you're going to shoot them very few days. You're going to consolidate their material. You're going to get them in and out and make sure the experience is really breezy for them. So, uh, yeah, there's a lot of ways we can cut corners and save money. And I think we'll probably have to employ all of them. But as we said earlier in the episode, that doesn't mean you don't try. We're going to try for the big money. I doubt we'll get it, but we're going to (laughs) try. It might, it might seem a daft question, but like, is this one where, you know, because of the nature of the budget, because it's the first feature film that you're, you're hoping to make, will there be appearances from (laughs) the the cracked people that like, you know, many of your audience know, like, I mean, are Um, you in the film? uh, My mom tells me I should play my dad because I am the right age to play my Uh younger father. But, uh, uh, (laughs) no, we want we really want something that feels different from cracked and feels like it's funny. It's kind of dumb, but, uh, a, there's no roles that are the right age for the cracked Mm -hmm. folks. And B, it wouldn't feel like a real movie. Then it would feel like a long sketch that I I made with my friends. Yeah. Yeah, No, I want to make a real movie. Yeah. (laughs) That has strangers in it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, no, fair enough. Um, I will say this though. If this movie is successful enough to warrant a next movie, which of course is the deepest hope that you harbor, um, mm. that movie will be a sketch comedy movie starring all the cracked people. That's already been decided. Oh, beautiful. Yeah. Love that. Well, if there was ever any reason to hope for success, there it is. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, I, I imagine that at some point there will be a cracked reunion movie or show or something because we all There's very much be, are yeah. still in each other's lives. Yeah. Hmm. And it, I mean, if the, the kids in the hall can do it, can come back 25 years later, why not us? Well, true enough. And I think, again, it's it's such a weird one because there's there's such a romanticizing of the like I said, the golden golden years of cracked. You know, like you guys are all like this lovely friend group that you're actually friends. That's really sweet. You know, and I think that's what a lot of a lot of your fans connect to, and the idea that you know back together. It's like that's cool. I want to see that, you know. Yeah. And it's really it's just true. As, it's just it's not as basic as that as well, you know. It's like, hey, these guys are friends and they make fun stuff together. Let's <laughs> see what they do. That's you all know? we were ever setting out to be and do. <laughs> I love it. Well, Michael, I thank you so much for your time. Um, this has genuinely been such um, a privilege for me to have you on my podcast. Um, this is one of those, like, I, I don't make any money from this. I do it in my spare time when I'm able to. A mate of mine edits it for free, you know, and we just kind Shout of, out to mate. Yeah, shout out to Lee. He's a, he's a good egg. Um, and yeah, it's just, um, I don't know. It was, it was a, pleasure to, a pleasure to chat. And I think without projecting too much of my own, um, what is it, my own interests in life i truly believe Mm. that you're a a content creator worth following because of that variety that we spoke about you know if people are interested in what the the book's about by this chat they can they can find that and there'll be links to all of that stuff attached but equally so like whenever people talk to me about oh what podcast do you listen to if you make Mm -hmm. podcasts maybe you know more and it's like 
I say check out Small Beans because it's not Please just do. your content that you'll find, but you'll also find these shared um, sister networks and things. Like there's so much and it's great. And it's just, it's good content, you know? It's Thank just nice. You. Thank I like you, it. man. I love this it. This has been lovely. Appreciate okay. you. <laughs> uh, anything you want to plug before you leave? Just, uh, yeah, if you search Small Beans, wherever you get podcasts, you'll find our podcast feed. And if that interests you or you're interested in checking out the book or some of the other things we do or learning about the progress of Papa Bear, that's all over at patreon.com slash small beans. And I don't know if you saw the latest Some More News episode, but it's about how Patreon might go away at any time and then we'd all be screwed again. Ah. Interesting. Interesting stuff. (laughs) (laughs) It's an adventure. It's always a wild ride making your living on the Internet. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, and long may it continue for you because I truly I can't wait to see what stuff you create throughout the next however many years you're alive because I assume you're going to keep you, making John. stuff, you know. That's the um, hope. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure and thank you as always to everyone who has taken the time to listen. Thank you for listening to I'm Glad You Exist. If you want to support the podcast, be sure to give us a follow wherever you listen to podcasts, give the show a review, and tell your friends about us. Intro music is by the incredible Sam Walwyn. Outro music is by the exceptional Sizzlebird. Mixing and engineering by Lee Alexander. And I've been your host, John Leo. Check the description for this episode for details on how to find us. And if you do one thing today for someone else, consider telling them why you're glad they exist. See you next time.